Only Elvis Presley and Mickey Mouse might be more famous than she is. The bombshell pinup girl turned dazzling actress turned shrewd businesswoman. But there was an underlying darkness to her life and so many questions around her death. Was it actually an enema or the FBI that killed her? This is the true crime story of Marilyn Monroe, the Hollywood plaything with a surprising depth. Hi friends, I'm Katie, and this is Katie Does Crime. Thank you so much for joining me today, and a huge shout out to all of my Patreon patrons. I see you. Today's case caught my eye because Netflix is releasing a new movie about her on September 28th, and I realized I didn't know much about the controversy surrounding her death. The main thing I knew about Marilyn Monroe is that people love to say she was fat because she was a size 14 in her lifetime, not realizing that sizing has changed over time, and she had a 28-inch waist even at her heaviest. Oh well. When Marilyn's longtime housekeeper woke up in the middle of the night on August 5th, 1962, and saw that a light was still on in the movie star's bedroom, she was concerned, and became even more so when she found the bedroom door locked and no response. The housekeeper and Marilyn's psychiatrist broke the window in her Los Angeles home and found her overdosed on barbiturates, or sedatives. The Chicago Tribune reported at the time that she was naked and held a telephone in one hand, as if she'd been attempting to call for help. She'd been taking those sedatives for years to help with sleeping issues, so psychiatrists on the coroner's team determined that she wouldn't have accidentally taken a dose so many times over the lethal limit. Marilyn was only 36 years old. Marilyn Monroe was born Norma Jean Mortensen on June 1, 1926, in Los Angeles County Hospital. Her father was a mystery. Her mother, Gladys Pearl Monroe, battled paranoid schizophrenia, and her grandparents had both passed on before little Norma Jean was one year old, so she spent her childhood in and out of foster homes and even an orphanage. Her mother had been married to a man with the last name Baker and a man with the last name Mortensen, and although it was assumed that Marilyn's father was actually a third man, her birth certificate listed Mortensen as her last name to escape any scandal. Just this year, an expert in molecular archaeology used a hair sample of Marilyn's taken from her embalming and the saliva from the great-grandchild of the man actually suspected to be Marilyn's father to attempt to confirm his identity. Her father was found to be Charles Stanley Gifford, a man who had been Marilyn's mother's boss at RKO Pictures when she worked there as a negative cutter. Marilyn's mom had once shown her a photo of Gifford and said he was her father, but Gifford was a married man with a family, and he denied the connection when Marilyn tried to speak to him several times. It's not hard to imagine that this childhood trauma and abandonment led to her fragility as an adult, even as she became a superstar actress known the world over. It's really hard to read about the terrible situation she was put in as a teenager, being shuffled from home to home, from family friend to relative and back again, being abused by multiple men who were supposed to be her father figures. She actually escaped one of these abusers at one point, but was then sent back to him and his family when her caretaker became too sickly. Then that family was relocated because of the father's job, but weren't allowed to take a foster child across state lines. So Marilyn chose to get married to a 21-year-old neighbor at the age of 16 rather than return to the orphanage. She had never been a great student aside from her interest in writing, and she now dropped out of school completely. Marilyn was working at a military weapons factory during World War II when a photographer came in to take photos of the lady production line to lift the spirits of our boys overseas. Marilyn soon quit her factory job completely and began modeling full-time, straightening her naturally curly brunette hair and dyeing it blonde to get more work. 
Her top-heavy proportions made her a big hit in men's magazines, if you know what I mean. But it's said that Marilyn was very ambitious and very hardworking. When she landed an acting contract with 20th Century Fox in 1946, she finally got her now-famous stage name, transforming from Norma Jean to Marilyn. One of the movie execs thought Norma Jean Doherty, her married name, was much too hard to pronounce. He suggested her mother's maiden name, Monroe, and the first name Marilyn because she reminded him of the Broadway star Marilyn Miller. She considered the names Claire Norman, Meredith, and Carol Lind, but she ultimately landed on and later legally changed her name to Marilyn Monroe. The new name didn't completely work its magic, though. In the years following her first film studio contract in 1946, Marilyn had only minor supporting roles and at one point turned to nude modeling for calendars and artists. But through 1951, she received praise from critics who saw her potential, and fans certainly weren't immune to her charms. She was named Miss Cheesecake of 1951, an honor given to the spiciest pinup model of the year, and she had relationships with several high-profile actors and the director of such hits as On the Waterfront and A Streetcar Named Desire. This is also when she started her relationship with former baseball star Joe DiMaggio, who would later become her second husband. But it was also during this time that Marilyn came to depend on prescriptions and alcohol to get her through her acting day. She suffered from low self-esteem and stage fright, maybe partly due to the stutter she developed as a child. She said it just appeared one day amidst her childhood abuse, and it actually became more pronounced during her lifetime, so much so that she spoke as little as possible. She said that even in school, she gave up talking for a long while and thought she'd just die whenever a teacher called on her. She said, I always had the feeling of not wanting to open my mouth, that anything I said would be wrong or stupid. It didn't help that she was bullied by film directors due to the sexism of the time. I had a small part in the movie, and the um, assistant director came in and yelled at me. Oh, he talked off. When, when I got into the scene, I, instead of my lines, I woo, 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 and the director came up. He was furious. He says, you don't stutter. I said, that's what you think. <laughs> But despite the barbiturates and liquor, or maybe because of the relief they provided, Marilyn's star was still on the rise. She solidified her blonde bombshell look during this time by accentuating the beauty mark on her cheek with eyeliner pencil and often wearing white to match her hair. By 1953, she was seen as a major Hollywood seductress thanks to films such as Niagara and Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Her body-hugging dresses, hip-swaying walk, and scene shot only with a towel hiding her voluptuous figure made some women's groups call her movies immoral. And actress Joan Crawford of Mildred Pierce said Marilyn's revealing clothes and quips about wearing no underwear were unbecoming an actress and a lady. Sounds like somebody's jealous. But many say that Marilyn actually had a tight grip on her public image, that she controlled what was said about her in the press by befriending gossip columnists. Her little girl voice and breathlessness were all part of this naive act. When she leaned over and her itty-bitty dress strap broke at a press conference for The Prince and the Showgirl with Laurence Olivier, no one was sure that she hadn't planned the entire thing for attention. And that famous Subway Great photo with her white dress billowing around her, one of the most iconic images in history, was a publicity stunt for her movie The Seven-Year Itch. When someone asked her what she had on for that nude calendar shoot she did in 1949, she said, I had the radio on. She was the clever girl. As much as her appearance earned her a place in Hollywood, the types of roles it garnered ensured that she was always seen as a dim-witted playgirl. 
at a time when women just did not own production companies, she founded Marilyn Monroe Productions to combat the terrible scripts and indentured servitude she was forced to endure by under contract with male-owned movie studios. She made only one independent film and one project with 20th Century Fox under her company's name, but it gave Marilyn this newfound power that meant other production companies would have to give her script, director, and cinematographer approval if they wanted to work with her. But even if Marilyn was able to take control of her career, she wasn't able to control what people wanted from her. She wanted to be a bombshell and in musicals, but she also wanted serious roles and to use the acting chops she developed in New York City's Actors Studio. The public wanted her to only be this one thing, a beautiful, carefree, radiant doll to play with and entertain them. After her marriage to Joe DiMaggio ended in divorce in 1954, lasting a mere 274 days, she married for the third time to death of a salesman playwright, Arthur Miller, and converted to Judaism for him. The media hated seeing their darling girl united with this left-wing, commie, intellectual elitist, and one headline at the time famously read, Egghead Weds Hourglass. They supposedly loved Marilyn, and yet they objectified her and whittled her down to nothing more than her shape. They say that Marilyn Monroe syndrome is when everyone loves you, wants to be close to you, and makes you the center of attention, but no one really knows you, and everyone's only using you. In her book, The Marilyn Syndrome, Dr. Elizabeth McAvoy argues that long before Marilyn ended her life, she died of emptiness and solitude. It reminds me of this study I read a few years back where researchers talked about emotional labor, the idea that people like fast food workers have to provide service with a smile no matter how their day is going or how the customer's treating them. Having to fake happiness for so long leaves workers feeling depleted. And this is how Marilyn had to live every day for the sake of her fans all over the world like everything was perfect and easy. Of course, I should point out, she made a whole lot more money doing it than your Starbucks barista does. But at the end of her life, it seems like maybe Marilyn had had enough. She overdosed on sedatives several times, but was able to get help in time to survive, showed up late to filming and couldn't remember her lines, and had a public affair, one of many apparently, with one of her film co-stars. She divorced Miller in 1961 after reading in his notebook that he regretted marrying her and found their marriage disappointing. I'm imagining that after having been abandoned by her mother as a child and being abused by her father figures, it was too much to also be betrayed by her husband, the family she chose. Marilyn lived out the rest of her days battling endometriosis, sinusitis, and depression, and of course, famously singing happy birthday to John F. Kennedy on stage at Madison Square Garden in New York City. When she died at her Brentwood home in the late hours of August 4th, 1962, friends and admirers blamed the media for tormenting her. Her death was officially ruled an intentional overdose by the LA County coroner, but as with any celebrity death, conspiracy theories abound. One is that Marilyn was going to cause a scandal over her affair with U.S. Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy, and the Kennedys had her assassinated, or at least helped her along by encouraging her drug dependency. Or maybe it was the FBI or CIA who wanted to put pressure on the Kennedys by having her murdered. Or maybe it was union boss Jimmy Hoffa who wanted to get to Marilyn's secret red diary full of scandalous information she'd gleaned from her affairs with the Kennedys. The deputy coroner in LA at the time published an explosive memoir years later where he said that he saw the red diary when Marilyn's body and personal effects came in, but it later mysteriously disappeared and that as a young employee, he was forced to lie on the autopsy and say there was an extensive bruising all over Marilyn's body. It was all part of a massive cover-up, he said. 
Of course, his credibility was later called into question because it turns out he'd been fired from the coroner's office for stealing from corpses. One of the more imaginative theories I saw was from a journalist who said that Marilyn was totally psychotic at the end of her life and accidentally overdosed in an ambulance one night while heading to the hospital. But Robert Kennedy wanted to get out of the city before the press discovered the death and, you know, obviously linked him to it. So the Kennedys conspired with the FBI director to bring her body back to her house and have the scene staged. Bedroom door and window somehow locked from the inside and all. Another favorite theory I came across is that Marilyn's housekeeper ended her life with a deadly sedative enema. How else do you explain that the housekeeper may have been doing laundry at midnight that night? She obviously needed to wash the stray enema contents off the sheets after killing Marilyn. One argument against these theories is that Marilyn wouldn't have been interested in ending her own life because she and Joe DiMaggio were about to get remarried. And it's true that the two had rekindled a friendship during the time and that he helped to arrange her funeral. He also arranged to have fresh roses brought to her crypt at the Westwood Village Cemetery in L.A. three times a week for 20 years following her death. Only 20 years, Joe? But it's also understandable that after a lifetime of hardship, Marilyn might have wanted to end the pain. The Daily Mail reported in 2017 that she had a secret pregnancy in 1960 after an affair with her Let's Make Love co-star that ended mysteriously at the hospital. But the Marilyn Monroe collection says there's no proof that she was pregnant in these slides taken by a friend, that this was during the time that Marilyn was at her heaviest weight and just naturally had a bit of a belly. She was pregnant in 1956, 1957, and 1958, though, and despite endometriosis causing fertility complications for some women, she blamed herself for her ectopic pregnancy and two miscarriages. Her final film, The Misfits, was based on her husband Arthur Miller's short story, and he kept rewriting the script at night before filming the next day. Coupled with Marilyn's increasing substance abuse, it was nearly impossible for her to learn the new lines, and the movie ultimately failed at the box office. Marilyn was an artist, a woman who wrote her own poetry and did most of her own singing in her movies, and I can't imagine how frustrations both in her career and in her personal life must have affected this already troubled beauty. I started researching the death of Marilyn Monroe because of Netflix's upcoming movie, Blonde, but what I found is that her life was actually much more interesting. I had this idea about her that she was just a superficial floozy, her persona dreamed up entirely to lure him into the box office, who hadn't been keen on the tough, smart characters played by actresses like Katherine Hepburn in the 1940s. I thought that playing a bimbo probably meant that she was a little bit of a dummy herself and certainly not a great actress. But I have to admit that I went back and watched Some Like It Hot, which won Marilyn the Golden Globe for Best Comedy slash Musical Actress, and she couldn't have been more charming in it. Sure, the role is absolutely silly, but she's just adorable playing it. It seems like she tried her darndest to get more serious roles. She went so far as to start her own production company in order to get them, but the culture at the time just wasn't having it. So whatever you think of her acting, there's no denying that she was an icon and a beauty in both full pinup makeup and with bedhead at the beach. So what do you think of Marilyn? Overrated? Assassinated? Having not known a lot about her myself, I'm really interested in what you guys think. Thank you for tuning into my podcast episode. I'm just a true crime fan like you are, and I really appreciate you taking a chance on me. Please subscribe and tell a friend if you like spending this time together. You can also find me on YouTube in the flesh by searching Katie Does Crime.